Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, the last sentence in verse 19 actually provides part of the thought of these few sentences. It says, and they went into a house, then the multitude came, in verse 20, together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. In the third chapter of Mark, we see the courage of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. Why do we say courage? Because Jesus is going to heal a man. He's going to generate a miracle, which is also going to produce malice. You would think that the miracle alone would just simply provide wholeness and wellness for a person who needed wholeness and wellness. But you're going to begin to understand something, that the miracle of Jesus is going to set in motion a mindset. How did he do that? The malice is going to come from the religious leaders who, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, will plot the death of Jesus. We go from the courage of Jesus to the compassion of Jesus in verses 7 through 12. He restores the sick. He releases the possessed. We see the call of Jesus in verses 13 through 19 as he calls a group of disciples to a place of intimacy and proximity with him in the work of the ministry. We are introduced to their number, 12, their nature and their names. And from the courage of Jesus to the compassion of Jesus to the call of Jesus, we're going to see the critics of Jesus. The critics of Jesus will come from family and friends and later from foes. As a matter of fact, early on in Jesus's ministry, he'll remind people that beware that even some of your closest friends will be a source of division. And so we're left with this reoccurring theme and the reoccurring question, who is Jesus in the chapter thus far, Jesus has been called a lawbreaker in verses one through six, a miracle worker in verses seven through twelve, the master in verses 13 through 19. And now we have a new word mad beside himself. The polite phrase is mentally ill. Later, we're going to see his family try to stage an intervention. If you take a quick peek at verse 31, it says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent out to him, calling for him. By the way, this is the only mention of Mary in Mark's gospel. And we'll talk about that later when we get to that particular passage. The religious leaders don't dispute the fact that Jesus performs miracles. As a matter of fact, this is one of those odd situations where the religious leaders don't doubt that blind eyes have been opened, deaf ears have been opened, lepers have been cleansed, even dead people have come back to life. Their position is going to be that the source of Jesus's power comes from a sinister source. Later, Jesus will ask his disciples whom do you say that I am? Whom do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And a variety of 
uh, uh, possibilities are going to be offered. Your that prophet, your Jeremiah, your John the Baptist come back from the dead, at least in the power of John the Baptist, your Elijah. And then he'll say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter will say the remarkable words, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The identity and the ministry of Jesus, the reason why we're bringing this up is because it has been misrepresented and misunderstood for a very long time. If you're thinking that the ideas concerning the identity of Jesus came hundreds of years or thousands of years later, we find in the scriptures themselves that question, who is he really? And so in verse 20, the multitude make the ministry difficult. It says, then the multitude came together again. These are the crowds so that they could not so much as eat bread. That's the apostles in Jesus. In the chapter, Mark mentions the multitude several times. In verse 6, this huge swelling crowd that will begin to follow Jesus everywhere in verses 7 and 8. And then Mark will hint at the danger of the crowds in verses 9 and 10. And then the place where they were staying becomes overrun, mobbed, if you will, by people. The popularity of Jesus is also one of the factors that will create such resentment and anger and hatred towards Jesus. Clearly, Jesus is very popular. Why are the crowds following him? Jesus hasn't called for crowds, but I think we've already been given a hint at the answer. If you have somebody who can open blind eyes and deaf ears, who can cast out demons, if, if there is in fact a person who can do what Jesus says he can do, it makes perfect sense that people are going to begin to overwhelm him. The zeal may have come from need. It may have come from curiosity. There may have been actual people who were sincerely wanting to know the truth about Jesus, just like some of you or some of your family and friends. They're genuinely curious about Jesus. The demands of the crowd become so overwhelming and it's going to generate so much pressure that Jesus and his disciples barely have time to eat. Remember, Jesus and the newly appointed apostles are ministering under enormous pressure. They're sacrificing physical need and personal necessity. But there's something else about the text. We are left with the impression that neither Jesus nor the apostles turn the people away. Whatever else is happening. The presence of Jesus and the presence of the crowds present this unique opportunity for Jesus to minister and to, for Jesus to serve. And Mark's gospel, by the way, always presents Jesus as the servant, not as a celebrity. Even when the crowds show up, it's not celebrity status that he's looking for. And by the way, I think that's the right way of thinking about it. Jesus does not so much cater to the crowds, but rather he ministers and serves them. And the relatives of Jesus saw this as a gross imposition. What was it about Jesus that he was so interested in helping others that he was willing to neglect himself? 
And that might even be something that someone you know has said about you. Why is this Christianity thing so important to you? Why is Jesus so important to you? Why would you focus your attention on Jesus and the things of Jesus to what they perceive as the neglect of your other duties or your other responsibilities? And that's the contrast that we see right from the start. The contrast of the crowd and the close relatives, they see the behavior of Jesus as irrational. Look at verse 21. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. Contrast that. Look carefully at the expression. They went out to lay hold of him. It's a single Greek verb. Kratio. It can be translated to grasp or to lay hold of. Or to seize. Sometimes it was used to take into possession or to take into custody. The idea carries with it the idea of restraining someone or taking someone against that person's will or against that person's consent. There doesn't seem to be any hostile intent which caused the New American Standard translators to use the term to take custody or the New, the New International Version to take charge. The idea is where you lay hold of someone quite against their will. Imagine in our own culture and society if someone says, I'm going to kill myself. What's your response? You call the police. Well, I was only kidding. If someone kids about something like that, it reveals something really wrong with them. If they're kidding in order to manipulate you, that's a problem. And if they really mean it, that's a problem. Either way, your response can never be to ignore them. His own people probably refers to his immediate family who are talked about in verse 31. His brothers and his mother come. And so the expression, he is out of his mind, translates a singular word in the text. Existi. It's in the second aorist. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but what it has with it, it carries the idea to be outside of one's faculties or to be outside of one's mind or to be outside of one's senses. That's why it's translated that way. Paul, by the way, was accused of exactly the same thing in Acts chapter 26, verse 24. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, he's out of his mind. The famous Greek scholar A.T. Robertson offers this explanation, quote, Mary probably felt Jesus was overwrought and wished to take him out of the excitement and the strain that he could get proper rest and proper food. We're not told whether his own people were embarrassed or shamed. By the way, people who are diagnosed with a mental disease often have a variety of responses from family and friends. The response might be support. The response might be encouragement. The response might be shame. The the response might be embarrassment. 
did some of Jesus' family believe that he was some kind of fanatic? And this generated a sense of shame or embarrassment. But remember, one of the options for Jesus can't be to go along with them. Because in a few moments and in a few verses, the religious leaders are going to accuse Jesus of being demonically possessed. And it makes perfect sense to the religious leaders that an altered state of consciousness or a detachment from reality would be the perfect mechanism to invite some sort of satanic force to take over. But remember what we're looking at. The possibility. The probability. The persuasive argument concerning who he really is and clearly his own family to a certain extent has no idea who he is. J.R. Miller writes, quote, even our Lord's relations didn't understand him. His life was so unworldly that it could not be measured by the ordinary standards. Here they could account for his unconquerable zeal only by concluding that he was insane. We hear much of the same kind of talk in modern days when some devoted follower of Jesus utterly forgets himself, forgets themselves in love for his master. People say that person must be crazy. They think every man is crazy whose religion kindles into some sort of unusual fervor, who grows more earnest than the average Christian and work for the master. Some of Paul's friends thought that he was crazy when he made the sweeping statements over land and sea to carry the gospel to every city and to every province. But here was Paul's answer. I'm not crazy. The love of Jesus constrains me. You might have the same problem. Family, friends, what are you doing? I mean, I can see going to church on Sunday, but Wednesday? And then a Bible study on top of that? Are you nuts? You give money to missions? Are you crazy in this economy? You see, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to make a lot of different claims for a lot of different reasons. Even among certain Christians, when a person is on fire for the Lord, they're designated extreme or they're given the label fundamentalist. And it's always with a frown of disapproval. Hey, I understand it's okay to be spiritual but the reality, the more we adopt the message of Jesus and the more we adopt the character of Jesus and the more we adopt the conduct of Jesus, we're going to risk adopting the labels that the contemporary of critics of Jesus called him. Remember, Jesus has already said they persecuted me. Why would it shock you that they would persecute you? They called me crazy. Why should it shock you that you're called crazy? You see, here's part of the point. If you set out in your life to be exactly like everyone else, to make your fortune, they will cheer you. But the moment that you stand up and you make the statement, I'm going to honor God and I'm going to love Jesus and I'm going to serve him. I'm going to use the God given gifts and talents that God has given me in order to expand the kingdom and in order to make the Lord happy. 
people will, will accuse you of being a fanatic. So who is this person? Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis popularized the argument that Jesus is lunatic or liar or Lord. Possible, plausible, persuasive. Is Jesus mad? Is Jesus bad? Or is Jesus God? Again, one of the most famous statements C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, wrote, quote, I am here trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or as one other uh, English scholar said, a pot of tea. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with this patronizing nonsense of, about being a great human teacher. He never left that option open to us. He never intended to. Now it seems to me obvious that he is neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem I have to accept the view that he was and is God, unquote. Peter Kreeft and Ronald Ticelli have expanded this trilemma, lunatic, Liar, Lord, and they've added another L word, legend. Some have even added a, a fifth, pentaluma, accommodating the option that maybe Jesus was some guru who believed himself to be God in the sense that everything is God, in the pantheistic way, in the, you know, everything is God, birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above. And a thing called, yeah, some of you know the song. But here, the Yale historian Kenneth Scott LaTourette wrote, no, it is not his teachings which make Jesus so remarkable, although these would be enough to give him distinction. It is a combination of the teachings with the man himself. The two cannot be separated, and that is exactly right. You can't divorce what Jesus said from who Jesus is. He doesn't allow you that freedom. Does, by the way, Jesus, does he leave you with the impression of being a consummate liar? Now, I want you to take a little test in your own heart for just a moment. You don't have to say it out loud and you don't have to hit the person next to you. But have you ever met a liar? Really met a liar. A person who's a consummate liar. The person who lies about anything and everything for any reason or no reason at all. What some people call a pathological liar. 
And by the way, if you've ever met a liar, does Jesus strike you as a liar? When you read his words and when you read his deeds, if Jesus claimed to be God, and by the way, he did, and was not God, then that would make him a liar. He would have been foisting a deliberate hoax on his followers. He would also be found a hypocrite <clears throat> since he insisted on honesty from others and then refused to exercise honesty himself. Worse, he, he invited others to trust him and to trust him alone for salvation. And if Jesus couldn't substantiate his claims and knew it, that would put him into a whole different category of someone who is unspeakably evil. But then you read things like the Sermon on the Mount. You read things like his moral teachings. And by the way, great moral teachers won't mislead you on the most fundamental issue of their own identity. So deliberate liar doesn't seem to be consistent with the words of Jesus or the deeds of Jesus. Let's do something that very few people are, are willing to do. Let's entertain the notion just for a moment that Jesus was mentally ill. Is it possible that Jesus made these claims, believed them, but it just simply wasn't true? Could he have been mistaken? Could he have been sincerely wrong? Remember the world in which Jesus lives. He is a Jew. He has been born a Jew and raised a Jew. He has been in, in, raised in an environment of radical monotheism. And for someone to be radically, fundamentally, wholeheartedly believe that he is God in a culture that embraces the singular belief in a singular God and then generate a response causing other people to believe that he is God then he's not just simply departing from Judaism. He is doing something far worse. Now, remember I asked you earlier, if you've ever met a liar, and I told you not to poke the person next to you, have you ever met someone who is mentally ill or emotionally disturbed? I spent seven years in social services, four as a clinical caseworker, three as the supervisor of the department, my own education and training is in mental health. And some of you have been around mental health, either as a psychiatric nurse or maybe as a medical doctor. You have been in the mental health community. And you understand some of the dynamics of people who have mental and emotional disorders. Now, in the whole time that I can remember, even in my lifetime, I can tell you of ten people who claim to be Jesus. Eight of them are dead. None of them proved their credentials. If someone said to you, I'm Napoleon, I'm Alexander the Great, you are going to rightly determine that this person is either deluded or deranged. But imagine if a person claims to be Jesus. 
Imagine if a person claims to be the reincarnation of Jesus, which we've seen over and over again. And for some people, it isn't a mental disorder, but an interesting theological possibility as they are able to actually generate a following. Which is surprising to me that you wouldn't want to check out somebody's credentials. By the way, I've met people who claim to be the reincarnation of Mary Magdalene. I've met people who have claimed to be the reincarnation of other famous people. I've never met a single person who said to me that they're the reincarnation of Hitler. Isn't it funny who we pick to be the reincarnation of? By the way, if someone did say to you that they were the reincarnation of Hitler, would you be a little disturbed? Would you think that this person might be dangerous? And when you read the New Testament, do you see the abnormalities and the imbalances that characterize a person with mental illness? In his book, A Ready Defense, Josh McDowell writes concerning two physicians, Noyce and Kolb, in a medical text, describe the schizophrenic as a person who is more autistic than realistic. The schizophrenic desires to escape from the world of reality. Let's face it, claiming to be God would certainly be a retreat from reality. In light of the other things we know about Jesus, it's hard to imagine that he was mentally disturbed. Here is a man who spoke some of the most profound sayings ever recorded. His instruction had been the source of liberation for literally tens of thousands of people in mental bondage, unquote. McDowell then quotes Clark Pinnock before he went off the deep end. Quote, was he deluded about his greatness, a paranoid, an unintentional deceiver, a schizophrenic? Again, the skill and depth of his teaching support the case only for his total mental soundness. And then he makes this statement. If only we were as sane as Jesus. Interesting. Psychiatrist J.T. Fisher, long recognized as one of the leading authorities in mental health in the world, wrote, If you were to take the total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene... If you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to the fruitless and restless yearnings. This from a psychiatrist saying your Bible and its instructions becomes one of the greatest sources of mental and emotional health. The historian Philip Schaff writes, quote, is such an intellect clear as the sky, bracing as the mountain air, sharp and penetrating like a sword, thoroughly healthy and vigorous, always ready, always self-possessed, liable to radical and most serious delusion concerning his own character and mission. Preposterous, unquote. Were... The claims of Jesus, the claims that come from a liar, 
possible, probable, persuasive. Were the claims of Jesus coming from a lunatic possible, probable, persuasive? What about the legend? Were the claims of Jesus and the words of Jesus eviscerated, embellished, expanded? And then did it mushroom into some sort of legend that bore little resemblance to the historical Jesus? By the way, that's what Dr. Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill claims. This agnostic and skeptic says only one gospel, the gospel of John, makes the claim of Jesus's deity. He then cites the passage in Mark chapter two, where Jesus heals a man and makes light of the fact that only God can forgive sin and goes on to present what seems like a possible or plausible explanation that Jesus is not claiming either the rights and the prerogatives of deity. He thinks that his possible and plausible explanation rises to the level of persuasion Because he can't believe the alternative. That God could become a man. And he hopes that the reader is persuaded by what he thinks. What Dr. Ehrman seems to ignore is the overwhelming evidence offered by scholars such as Dr. Gary Habermas and others who concerning the reliability and the authority of the first century documents, Dr. Habermas devoted his whole life in a Ph.D. dissertation. He evaluated 1400 critical scholarly works on the resurrection from 1975 to 2003. He studied and cataloged 650 texts in English, in German, in French. Habermas reported that all scholars who were from a broad ideological spectrum agreed, along with now Dr. Michael Icona, concerning what they called the historical bedrock, three facts, three indisputable facts, that no matter what historian, historical position, no matter what view the historian takes, all agree on these three indisputable facts. Number one, the death of Jesus by the Roman method called crucifixion. Number two, shortly after the death of Jesus, the disciples had experiences that led them to believe and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and appeared to them. Number three, within a few years after the death of Jesus, Paul converted after a personal experience that he interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Why is this important to you? Because whether you believe he's a liar, whether you believe he's a lunatic, whether you believe he's a legend... One of the options isn't and can never be that he never existed. Now, Lycona is a good scholar and he would be the first to admit that a list of agreed upon facts doesn't make the claim true. There's a technical term for that fallacy. It's called consensus, gentium, fallacy. You may not understand what that means, but this is the fallacy of arguing that since most people believe that it's true, it must be true. But again, Lycona argues something doesn't become fact because the majority of scholars believe it, and I agree with him. However, as Dr. Gary Habermas says, quote, 
Certainly one of the strongest methodological indications of historicity occurs when a case can be built on accepted data that are recognized and well established by a wide range of otherwise diverse historians, unquote, and even Ehrman, skeptic that he is, agnostic that he is, unbeliever that he is, even he agrees that the historical bedrock is true. Jesus died by crucifixion. Ehrman writes in his own book, Early Christian Writings, on page 261 and 262, quote, One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate, unquote. Shortly after the death of Jesus, his disciples claimed to have seen him. Ehrman writes, quote, why then did some of the disciples claim to see Jesus alive after his crucifixion? I don't doubt at all that some disciples claim this. We don't have any of their written testimony. Pause. We don't have any of their written testimony. He's lying. He's lying. L-Y-I-N-G, lying. You know how we know? If you were bold enough to bring a Bible to church this morning, you have in your lap written testimony. Even Ehrman is willing to concede that Mark was informed by Peter. Even Ehrman is willing to concede that Matthew wrote Matthew's gospel and John wrote Matthew's gospel that it somehow became corrupt through Gnostic mysticism. You see, the truth is, your Bible is a written testimony by close companions of Jesus. Now, I'm going back to Ehrman, quote, but Paul, writing about 25 years later, indicates that this is what they claimed, and I don't think he's making it up, and he knew at least a couple of them whom he had met three years after the event the resurrection, Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, by Ehrman's own words. He says that the testimony that we have doesn't allow enough time for a legend to spring up. Now, some of you are younger than me, and some of you, God help you, are older than me. But do you have enough of a memory? How many of you in here can remember events that took place 25 years ago? Look around you. Look around you. Does 25 years give ample opportunity for someone who really isn't the Lord to not be the Lord? Is that, is that ample opportunity to generate falsehoods about healing and falsehoods about miracles and falsehoods about resurrection. Again, Ehrman writes based on an interview. Bart Ehrman is interviewed by David Barrett, the gospel according to Bart Ehrman, not Simpson. Ehrman writes, quote, 
What about those writers like Akira S., this is the Christ conspiracy, and Timothy Freak and, and Peter Gandy, this is the Jesus mysteries, who say that Jesus never existed and that Christianity was an invented religion, the Jewish equivalent of the Greek mystery religions. This is an old argument, even though it shows up every 10 years or so. This current craze that Christianity was a mystery religion like those other mystery religions, the people who are saying this are almost always people who know nothing about the mystery religion. They've read a few popular books, but they're not scholars of mystery religions. The reality is we know very little about mystery religions. The whole point of a mystery religion is that it's secret. So I think it's crazy to build on ignorance in order to make a claim like this. I think the evidence is just so overwhelming that Jesus existed that it's silly to talk about him not existing. I don't know anyone who is a responsible historian, who is actually trained in the historical method, or anyone who is a biblical scholar, who does this for a living, who gives any credence at all to any of this, unquote. This from an agnostic unbeliever. By the way, Ehrman fails to address the reality of the deity of Jesus in numerous scriptures. He fails to address the reality that there's several lines of reasoning, including fulfilled prophecies of Jesus. There are over 300 prophecies, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that become true in Jesus' life. The chances of all of them coming true? Impossible. Ehrman's statement? Jesus... And the disciples conspired together to make it look like the prophecies applied to him. Really? Is that possible? Plausible? How do you conspire to be born of a virgin? How do you conspire to be born a Jew, a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David? How do you do that? Think about it. How many people in this building conspired to be born of their mother and father? I know what you're thinking. No, I had nothing to do with it because if I had something to do with it, they wouldn't have been my first choice. I would have been born into Bill Gates' family or Steve Jobs' family. I would have a $100 million trust fund. How do you conspire... To be born in Bethlehem. How do you conspire to have supernatural abilities? The late Wilbur Smith, respected Bible scholar of the last generation, wrote, quote, The latest edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica gives 20,000 words to this person, Jesus, and does not even hint that he did not exist. More words, by the way, than are given to Aristotle, Alexander, Cicero, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte. The religious leaders will use this opportunity of the failure of his own family to piggyback on the idea that he is insane and possessed. Really? What do you think? Liar? Lunatic, legend, some enlightened being like the Buddha. All the options and alternatives are possible, but not all are probable and clearly not all are persuasive. 
This decision isn't some theological or intellectual exercise. If Jesus is Lord, then eternity hangs in the balance. John, a close companion of Jesus, wrote, quote, These things have been written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you might have life in his name. Dr. James Allen Francis wrote some very memorable words. Quote, here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that we usually associate with greatness. He had no credentials other than himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property that he had on the earth. His coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen hundred long, nineteen long centuries have come and gone. And today he is the centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. Liar. Plausible. Probable, not persuasive. Lunatic, probable, possible, not persuasive. Legend, probable, possible, not persuasive. Lord, Lord. The Lord of heaven and earth. Let me pray for you, Heavenly Father. Lord, for that person who has to make that difficult choice. Lord, we know that there's all kinds of distractions. Ways to not have to think about him. But Heavenly Father, we know that it's almost impossible to go through life and not consider the reality of who He is, of who Jesus really is. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, 
that you would starve our doubts and feed our faith. As we live in a world that thinks we're crazy because we believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.